Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, in a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers the most important shifts in marketing technology. People who work in the world's largest media, tech, and advertising companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today I'm joined by Preston So. He's the Senior Director of Product Strategy at Oracle. He's the Editor-in-Chief of Tag One Consulting, the Editor of A List of Part, a regular columnist at CMS Wire, and the founder of Decoupled Days. It's a long, long CV. But Preston has also recently uh, released a new book called Voice Content and Usability. Now, Preston has a really long and storied career working in really the bleeding edge of customer experience online and has in recent times been focusing his attention on the opportunities and the needs of voice in digital experiences. And so today we talk about the need to really rethink how we understand what customer experience is online, preparing brands for the emergence of new technologies like voice and augmented reality and VR, and usher in new ways for people to interact with products and services, and how content strategy is transforming the way we use the internet, and is also becoming more diversified. And so I'm very excited to have Preston So on the Making Sense of MarTech podcast, and now I give you Preston. Hey, Juan, thank you so much for having me today on the uh, MarTech Weekly and this Making Sense of MarTech podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Well, let's start with an introduction. Um, I did mention that you've got quite a long CV and you've been doing a lot in this experience space, but I'd like to hear from you uh, what you've been working on. Uh, how did you actually get into this space initially? And what led you to choosing this topic for your latest book on voice content and accessibility? I certainly have a very checkered career in many regards, and I think just like so many of us in the technology world and in the MarTech world, I fell a little bit by accident into this domain of voice and immersive experiences and really customer experience beyond the web. I started out as a web designer and web developer. Um, originally, I actually was a computer programmer doing software applications way back in the day around 1999. Starting in 2001, I got into the web and started creating websites for clients and large organizations. And over the course of time, I began to think about the fact that in many regards, the ways in which we've undergone this initial digital transformation, this initial shift over from the print world to the world of the web has really influenced the ways in which we interact with not only, of course, the MarTech tools that we use today, um, but also the ways that we interact with our content. And I think when it comes to customer experience and user experience, and especially the ways in which we deliver content to our users and our audiences, the web has really overwhelmingly taken over this landscape. Over the course of the past 10 years or so, I've been really interested in, well, what's next? What's beyond the web? And, and what are some of the things that we can do to anticipate and really preempt some of the implications of what's coming next in the digital experience and customer experience landscape? What that led to was I had the opportunity a few years ago um, after I worked on leading the Entertainment Weekly website, which is a very large magazine known here in the United States. I uh, had the opportunity to join a company that was working in this very notion of digital innovation and customer experience innovation. And I had the chance to work on an innovation lab where we had some wonderful projects that we worked on for a variety of different, very well-known clients. And the reason I chose voice is back in 2014, 2015, voice was still very much a nascent industry in terms of technology. Um, a lot of people in the MarTech space had not really considered the impact and potential benefits and advantages of voice because it was such a new space and it was something that was still very much uh, challenging to implement and to architect. So today, um, you know, this book that I've just written, is, it's actually my third book, uh, Voice Content and Usability. It, it's, it's come out of this kind of project that we worked on. And of course, all the things that I've learned over the past five to six years working in the voice space, especially from a very unique perspective, which is 
for the most part, a lot of people who have worked on voice and voice technology and AR, VR and immersive technology, generally speaking, didn't come from the world of the web. But now that a lot of us who are involved in the web and MarTech Online and a lot of these web-driven strategies are now thinking very, very closely about some of the ways in which we can get involved in these other dimensions of user experience and customer experience. The main reason I think, though, that this is a very important space, and the reason I talk about this at a variety of different conferences like South by Southwest and an event apart, and of course, coming up Button, is the notion that the web is not the, you know, we have this very initial kind of reckoning that we have to have, which is this transition that we had in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s from print to web was really kind of this one-to-one -one transition where we had a sea change from one very big axis of content delivery and customer experience over into this one single kind of realm. Today, however, I think one of the things that we're seeing, especially accelerated by the ongoing pandemic, is a movement and a mass migration towards one to many different kinds of experiences and many different kinds of media. So we see, for example, ARVR taking hold uh, to a great degree. We see, of course, now that 35% of American households now have a smart speaker at home, a voice interface at home. So what does that do to some of the ways that we need to think about MarTech marketing in general, advertising in general, and of course, how we can stay ahead of these trends and technology to make sure that we're doing the best that we can. So today, a lot of my consulting, a lot of the work I do, a lot of the writing I do is focused around voice and has been, of course, for quite some time. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned that the internet really ushered in this whole new world of customer experience, but it's also pretty old now you know, we, we're kind of living through the fourth decade of the internet. And if you look at some of the major companies who have really influenced a lot of what we see now in customer experience, you know, the Amazons introducing e-commerce, streaming with Netflix, you know, even Facebook with social media, these companies are more than a decade old now, but it still all feels kind of new. And when I work with clients and a lot of large brands, you know, they're still grappling with the web and how to actually master and harness a technology that's in our browsers and in our smartphones to really pull off those great customer experiences. But I agree with you. We need to continue to look forward because customer experiences are diversifying. We've got new technologies. We've got uh, whole new mediums to tackle. Um, and I think it's, it's really interesting that you do say that I guess our experiences online have long been a visual affair. You know, we stare into screens, we use keyboards, and a lot of that hasn't really changed, but now it is. So I'd like to ask you, Preston, what do you think are some of those key indicators that uh, we're moving into this new phase? Uh, what are those technologies? How is it emerging? And, and what are you seeing on the horizon? There's two ways to answer this question. I want to answer it first by going way back in time, which I think is a little bit unusual for a response to this particular query. Um, but I also want to talk about the ways in which, you know, in, in many ways, we're kind of going through the motions of repeating history. Um, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, the ways in which we have developed customer experience today are very much rooted in a visual bias. And what I mean by that is when we think about the interfaces that we use today on a daily basis to interact with customer experiences and interact with uh, our content and of course our media, we're generally speaking using user interfaces and these customer experiences that are mediated through artificial or visual interfaces. And what I mean by that is, well, if you're gonna go to a website or if you're gonna go to Amazon, for example, and look at a product or buy a product, you're using things that are not innate to the human experience. You're moving around a computer mouse, you're typing on a keyboard, you're swiping on a screen, you're, you might even be using a game controller to navigate on your browser. And these are all things that don't come naturally or organically to humans. For example, if we were to go back to ancient Rome and bring back a computer mouse, bring back a keyboard, bring back all of these devices that we now use today, they wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of some of the things that we use today to interact with each other. But if you can speak Latin, or if you can speak classical Latin, there's a very good chance that you'll be able to have a pretty compelling conversation with somebody in Pompeii or Herculaneum. 
And the reason for that is because the notion of speech and the notion of this kind of experiential sense and these experiential modalities that emerge from voice, from AR, VR, from these more, these less, let's say, physically manipulated or physically managed interfaces indicates that we're moving back into this realm where we're not really playing on the same playing field as computers anymore. They're the ones that have to play on our playing field because of the fact that they're now having to deal with our most primordial instincts in many regards, which is, of course, speech. And of course, the ways that we use language. Every single person who is brought up in human society is going to most likely learn language at a very, very early age and acquire these these capacities at a very, very early age, much earlier than we would learn to type at 100 words per minute on a keyboard or know how to use a mouse. So that's one answer. I think the, 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 the second part of the answer, though, is that in many regards, as I just said, a lot of the ways in which these technologies have evolved are really not just to kind of force us into patterns and these user experience um, mechanisms that really only make sense to computers when it comes to the grand scheme of human-computer interaction. It's also about how they can become more human themselves. And this becomes a really big consideration for obviously artificial intelligence and the technology singularity. But I think one of the most important aspects of the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, is that people today are now acquiring content in very, very different ways. And I think one of the most compelling ideas that we learned from our work on AskGeorgiaGov, which was the first ever voice interface for residents of the state of Georgia, among the first ever content-driven Alexa skills, was the fact that Today, we no longer have to contend with just people who might be on a browser looking at a website, might be on their smartphone looking at a screen. We also have to contend with the fact that people might be doing some of these things at the same time. You might have somebody talking with their Amazon Alexa at the very same time that they're browsing on their phone or typing on their computer. And these cross-channel or multimodal interactions are now becoming a very important cornerstone of MarTech. But I don't think that our technology and I don't think that our approaches to the ways in which we deliver customer experience have quite kept up pace with the ways in which the content consumption, media consumption, and how we actually interact with these devices have been evolving at a very, very fast clip. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to me how uh, voice has always sort of been there. Even the first sort of real technology that we had that uh, uh, scaled communication was, uh, was the phone. And uh, mobile phones came soon after that. Then we had the internet. Then we had the ability to use the internet on our mobile phones. And now we've got, you know, social apps like Clubhouse, which is a voice um, first. It's a voice only social media platform. And, you know, it's there's all these really interesting innovations. But one thing that really strikes me about voice technology is that if you look at the landscape currently, there's not a lot of players who are building the hardware and the software to make it work. Like if you think of, you can probably rattle off a few off the top of your head, but Siri, uh, Alexa, Google has a product as well. Uh, these products were like, to your, to your point earlier, in 2014, they were pretty nascent. We didn't know much about it then. But now there's, I have an Apple HomePod in my house and I never thought I'd have that. And I bought it last year. And you know, what's even more fascinating is that my three-year-old daughter, uh, you know, she loves to sing and she also has just found a very fond interest in Frozen, the movie, the Disney movie. And so she will ask Siri, hey, uh, play Let It Go by Frozen. And she'll ask it again and again and again and again. And she's learned how to master this technology using her voice in a way that's so organic and it's so natural. And a three-year-old can pick up and use this technology, which absolutely fascinates me. And so I do definitely think that voice is becoming more integrated into our lives. I'm also concerned that it is being uh, steered by big tech and the players that can actually pull off the incredible feats of integrating voice technology with the hardware, making it a consumable product, being able to ship it to customers. No easy feat at all, but I definitely think the steering of it is quite interesting from the larger tech com technology companies. But I would like to probe a little bit more into how people interact with voice technologies as opposed to visual or browser-based 
um, tech or even sort of the spatial AR, VR type technology. In your research and in your work, how have you found that people interact differently? What are some of those key things that people do on voice that they don't tend to do elsewhere? I definitely couldn't agree more that I think some of the levers of power and some of the reins of power have been concentrated very, very strongly in some of these big tech companies, which I know you and I are both worried about quite a bit, Juan. Um, but to answer this, the, you know, these questions, I'll answer it in two ways once again. And, 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 you know, this is really, I think, indicative of the fact that because voice is such a human mechanism and it's such a primeval device or approach that we use to interact with not only each other, but also increasingly our technology, um, we have to consider all the different experiences that people have over the course of their lives and, and how uh, we as as technology practitioners, as MarTech uh, workers are able to really provide for these experiences. Um, the very first thing I'll say is that there is a lot of research that's been done about the ways in which people interact with conversational experiences over visual experiences. And I think one of the crucial examples of this is when you're talking about even the simple kind of example of information delivery or of handling feedback in a user, you know, sort of a user interface or application, I think one of the really big challenges that people face is that with a visual medium, you have this luxury of having this boundless space, this boundaryless zone in which you can insert all sorts of help text or all sorts of instructions for users who are trying to get in touch with your company or trying to do a certain task or trying to access certain information. And voice is very different from that. And, and spatial technology is very different from that, right? Because in the voice realm, one of the biggest issues you have is, well, you're no longer operating in the dimension of space, right? You're now operating solely along the dimension of time, which means that anyone that you're going to deliver information to or deliver feedback to in terms of that customer experience is going to be trapped or held captive for a certain amount of time while you actually traverse uh, that information or feedback. And spatial technology is somewhat similar in that you know, you are very much immersed in this kind of background world, this oftentimes falsified world or this world that's superimposed on top of your existing world. And that's a world that requires you to really be very brief and very careful about how much you splay onto the screen because of the fact that it's meant to be embedded into this immersive experience. So I think one of the things that's really interesting about the sort of research that's been done in this area is that you see all sorts of different strata, all sorts of different layers at which a lot of these interactions differ very strongly from each other. One example that I'll just cite, which is just one of many different kinds of things that people experience is, well, when you're interacting with a spoken interface or a voice interface, you're generally speaking having a conversation that's going to be more casual than some of the interactions you might have on a website. For the airline Qantas, for example, might be using a bit more formal diction or a bit more of a, let's say, service uh, industry focused kind of approach when they communicate with you on a written website. But on their spoken chatbot, right, you need to be able to carry a bit of a conversation. You need to be able to kind of tap into that social instinct that we as humans have. But I think there's a second answer to this question. And I think there are unique opportunities that a lot of these organizations have not yet tapped into. And that really comes into play when it comes to the different lived experiences that many of us have. Many blind users um, use screen readers on the web, which means mm. that they use a readout or a or a uh, tool that essentially reads aloud text on the website. And for disabled users and disabled communities around the world, voice interfaces have been proven to really help sort of alleviate a lot of these concerns. There's a very prominent blind technologist named Chris Mari who also works on voice technology. And uh, he wrote in Wired Magazine a few years ago that, you know, and, you know, he never really understood why screen readers are designed the way that they are, because they're rooted in the visual structure of the page rather than being rooted in any sort of aural foundation that makes far more sense to somebody who's interacting with these documents and information through time rather than through uh, space. So when it comes to those sorts of um, customer experiences that really are meant to 
help those who have those different uh, lived experiences, it's very important to tap into those sorts of opportunities. And that's one of the things that we did with our Ask Georgia Gov voice interface for the state of Georgia is we looked at demographically, well, a lot of the people who need to interact with these websites, a lot of the people who need to consume content that's related to state government, um, and this could be very, very true, a victorious government, for example, as well, is to look at, okay, well, the demographics that we're looking at are not just going to use the web. They're also going to use voice technology. We have many elderly citizens or residents of Georgia, for example, who might not be able to use a laptop or a smartphone very easily, but they are certainly able to use a voice interface because that's just like having a conversation at the deli counter in many regards. So they have an, they have an Amazon Alexa at home, but they might not have a MacBook at home, right? By the same token, blind users who are very burdened and have this intense cognitive load of having to use these screen readers will be very much able to use the voice interface to get the information that they need. So I think when it comes to a lot of the missed opportunities of the web, I think a lot of us have been very uh, kind of thrust and yanked over into this bias towards the visual strictures of the web, as opposed to really thinking about, well, what can voice do to broaden our perspective? Because this is one of the things that really shocked me about the research that we did initially around Ask Georgia Gov for the state of Georgia was, well, if you look at some of the things that we're seeing that differ between the analytics on the web and, of course, the eventual analytics that we built for the voice interface, those two audiences could not be more different from each other. And one of the really big mm. learnings that we had is that by only focusing on the web over the past four decades, we've, in a sense, actually done a disservice to our own revenue and also to our customers by not thinking outside the box and saying, well, you know, there are users out there who not only might want to play Let It Go on repeat, but also want to be able to interact with their content in a means that is not as complicated or not, let's say, as overhead laden as the web can sometimes be. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of advantages that we have yet to tap into and yet to explore. Yeah, yeah, I I agree that there's, there's, there's a world of opportunity. And I wanna pick up one thing that's been um, gaining a lot of traction recently, and you've probably read a lot about it as well, Preston, is this topic of the metaverse. And uh, you know, it's a bit of a vague, bit opaque. The concept's been around since the 90s. But recently, we've had some pretty big tech executives thinking about and talking about this idea from Satya Nadella, from Microsoft, Mark Zuckerberg, saying that Facebook is now going to be a metaverse company. And then a, a very prominent VC investor, Matthew Ball, did nine-piece massive content project on explaining what the metaverse is. And uh, basically what it kind of is, it's kind of like an open source, immersive world, similar to gaming and sort of multiplayer gaming, but it really taps into all the senses. It taps into voice and it taps into the visual components and the 3D spatial aspects. There's a layer of commerce over that as well. So it's kind of like re replicating all the core interactions you have in the physical world online. And, you know, that's all very fun and interesting, and it sounds like the future. It's not really flying cars, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, but, you know, I think that there has been, it's more probably uh, reflective of this trend towards companies saying that the technology is now here to move away from web, just web experiences, to having other mediums that can be just as significant and just as important. And I think you raising uh, people who are blind or, or people who are deaf or have other impairments, uh, sensory impairments, they have opportunities to engage with the internet and to have enjoy all the benefits of connectivity and instant access to information in, in all kinds of ways over this past decade. And so I think it's really important that we need to start planning and thinking about how are these new immersive technologies really going to take more of a center place in our own human experience? You know, I mentioned my daughter and she's learning how to command Siri at her whim to play Frozen's Let It Go. But that's just really the beginning of it. Uh, what would it look like when she's 20 years old? And what kind of technology will she be harnessing to get an education, to work, to make friends, to trade online, to do commerce. You know, there's all these explosive opportunities. And I agree with you that this is such a fascinating and such an interesting time to be working in this industry and also to be participating. But 
as we all know, Preston, some of these technologies become a bit of a fad. <laughs> if you look at, uh, at Clubhouse is a very clear example of this earlier this year, you know, really interesting experiment using um, social media dynamics and networks, but using voice only. And the app installs and the usage really sort of drawing down in the States, I believe, and then it's picking up in other parts of the world when they released Android. But then, you know, you do have a lot of people asking, well, what happened to Clubhouse? I thought everybody was using that social app. Nobody's using it now. We do go through these really interesting hype cycles of, yeah, different technologies coming and going. And so my question for you is, how do you know that this voice technology revolution is not just a fad? How do you, what are some of those key things you think are really pointing towards this being such a core part of how we experience things online? There are definitely some some early, I think, signs that, um, you know, and, and it's certainly true. I think, you know, hype curve wise, we've seen a lot of you know, sort of jaw clenching and, and, and gnashing about voice because, you know, the voice revolution, as has been predicted countless times, was supposed to happen in the 90s, then the 2000s, then the 2010s. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that there are certain signs that point to voice becoming a really integral part of customer experience today. And, and the proof is really in the pudding in the numbers, right? You know, as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the most interesting aspects of even prior to this ongoing pandemic was the fact that by 20, late 2019 and early 2020, you know, 35% of American households had a smart speaker at home, a Sonos One or, you know, Alexa or a Google Home. And I think one of the things that's really compelling right now is now that you've got this penetration of all of these different devices now infiltrating our homes and now being a very important part of our daily lives, that's kind of already that captive audience that you've now got. But I think there's also another factor here that's very important, and that is, okay, what are some of these uh, organizations and entities that are looking at these sorts of technologies actually building? And Ask Georgia Gov for the state of Georgia, which we built, was, was, was really one of those very early projects where we looked at, okay, voice is no longer just an experiment. It's no longer just something that we want to prove out with a hackathon or a quick little you know side project over the course of several weeks. They came to us and they said, we want to have a fully holistic and comprehensive strategy that straddles all of these different media because we know people want to consume content beyond the web. And we know that there are people that are beginning to buy these Alexa devices at home. And so these sorts of implications really point to, well, okay, voice has long been a fad. Voice has long been, let's say, the silo over here, especially when it comes to customer service organizations or customer service departments that use mm -hmm. these antiquated interactive voice responses or IVR systems that help, you know, guide you to the right extension or guide you to an agent. Those days are really fast becoming a little bit of a thing of the past because today we're now seeing organizations that no longer see voice as a fad. They're actually adopting it and really incorporating it into their long-term strategies. And we see this most importantly in content strategy where a lot of these brands are now saying, well, one of the big reasons why, and I think this is also a sign of the fact that a lot of organizations have moved past the sort of early failure stage of uh, voice, is that we're now seeing organizations that say, well, okay, how can we now manage our content in ways that allow us to really maintain it for the long haul? We have uh, right now, for example, there are so many organizations that had these false starts where they built a chatbot over here, a voice bot over here, but now you got three different properties, digital properties that you got to maintain to keep a consistent customer experience. That's a huge amount of budget. So um, a lot of the organizations that today are exploring voice are looking at ways to say, well, how can we deliver the same experiences that people find online, ways that really reflect the, that sort of brand voice when it comes mm. to how we transmit information, how we uh, complete tasks for customers, and how we do these things that actually create this holistic and really cohesive environment for us to operate in. Uh, I think one good example of this is, of course, a lot of the big tech companies are now doing this, like Google and Apple, of course. But I think, of course, some of the smaller organizations and some of the smaller folks who are building these, these experiences are very much along this path, like the state of Georgia as well. Um, but I think the biggest hurdle really is to think about the demographic shifts and the ways in which our technology is shifting. That number that I cited earlier was actually a quite old number. And one of the things that I've been tracking over the course of the past 18 months has been this very clear fact that 
the sales of smart speakers, the sales of immersive headsets, the sales of these experiential user experiences and interfaces have skyrocketed over the course of the pandemic. You see nowadays people who are buying a lot of these devices to have at home to allay boredom, to stave off loneliness, to help with yeah. empty nest syndrome. But this is now becoming a very important facet of people's lives. And it's now becoming something that a lot of organizations have to begin to take advantage of lest they be left behind. Hmm. And I think one of the biggest challenges with voice is that, um, as to your point, um, working with the Georgia government around how do you implement a strategy for using that technology. I feel like that is almost a really big gap that you kind of need the supply of different brands working, experimenting in this medium. You know, they need to be upskilled. Of course, they need the right talent and access to that technology to actually make that happen. Um, but they also need a strategy as well. And I want to unpack content strategy because you do touch on it quite a bit in the book. And you have some really great um, insights into how do you start building strategies around voice and immersive um, experiences. But before I do, if I could ask you this, Preston, what is the one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest things that are uh, that holding companies back from really investing in this medium of technology? What would be the one thing, do you think, uh, if you could boil it down? I think a lot of the issues that... Um really face adoption right now is confirmation bias that a lot of organizations have today. And I think this was very true mm. of the print to web transition as well. I think a lot of us now have gotten used to the fact that over the past few decades, you know, we've developed a new sense of digital nativeness, right? Um, we've, we've, we've concocted this sense of, well, the web is now the planet. The web is now how we play in the sandbox with everybody else in this competitive landscape. Um, but I think one of the things that is really challenging for a lot of organizations right now, especially is to think about the fact that, well, we've just made this big transition over to the web. We've just undergone this massive digital transformation from, uh, you know, to web and now we're moving into voice and, and it's all a little bit too much to handle but i think one of the things that people need to realize is that um you know we've been in, over the past 18 months involved in what mckinsey has called the the um techno the technological quickening right where a lot of the assumption that we held before about how customer experience works is simply no longer going to be the case. You mentioned the metaverse earlier i think one of the things that we're going to see as the pandemic ends here in the near future is the fact that we have now this um, notion of distributed work, of remote work, of international work, of global work, and to mm -hmm. tap into these networks that we have, it's not going to be as easy as we thought it was before. Voice becomes a very, very important component of that in terms of enabling a lot of these interactions. And it also becomes a really important uh, facet of how we really kind of approximate some of the in-person experiences that uh, may potentially be lost forever. Um, so, you know, when it comes to a lot of these organizations that are uh, looking at the ways to proceed, I would also say that, you know, a lot of this comes down to the fact that there is still this investment in MarTech and in technology that is lacking. I think we see a lot of organizations kind of sign on to a CRM tool or sign on to a CDP tool, but they don't really use it. You know, it becomes shelfware. And, and this is, I think, one of the big worries that a lot of people have about voice and a lot of these new um, approaches is, well, you know, is that just going to become kind of something that doesn't really deliver a lot of revenue or do a lot for us? When in reality, I think the um, kind of emerging uh, data that we're seeing is that you know, voice actually does provide a massive amount of revenue. If you look at especially the ways in which these large tech companies are leveraging voice, it is yes. providing a very compelling facet of the overarching customer experience. I think you're touching on digital experience. Uh, digital transformation is pretty apt here, Preston, because uh, you're right that companies are still transforming from web 2.0, you know, or even web 1.0, you know, like there's a fascinating story that came out about a month ago now where a little, and they're a uh, competitor to Aldi. So they're a grocery chain and they sell uh, groceries at cost price. And that company spent five years and 500 million euros looking to digitally transform uh, their logistics and the supply chain and their customer channels. And at the heart of that was an investment into SAP, SAP, 
you know, so we all know they do enterprise resource planning, they do CRM, they do all these different digital experiences. And they got five years down the track and they had to abandon the entire project and they weren't, didn't even implement the technology yet. And the reason for that is you can read the article, you can search it online, but uh, really what happened there was that they got to a point where it just didn't make sense for them to continue. And I see that and I see half a billion euros going into a digital transformation project. And I also see the dozens and dozens of these happening around the world, particularly with large enterprise businesses. And I think that there is a capability that there is, there is missing around harnessing technology at scale. What is different between an Amazon who is able to rapidly um, iterate and build something like an Alexa and Walgreens or Walmart? I think it's where they come from, right? A lot of these enterprise brands are also legacy brands as well. And so there is a lot of challenges understanding and thinking and how you actually harness this technology. And I think that perhaps is really what, what, you're, what we're trying to say here is that it's, it's a challenge, even just to transform for the digital world we live in today, moving into voice and, and these new aspects, there's huge amounts of opportunity there. But for a lot of enterprise brands, they're still kind of getting off the mark. <laughs> and we kind of, I guess, maybe, perhaps we need to be more patient, but you know, there's always that classic joke that, you know, enterprise businesses implement new technologies right at the last minute when they need to, <laughs> because of there's so many different organizational change things that need to happen. A lot of big companies don't think like tech companies, so they don't have that product and that agile um, iterative process and mindset to really um, move things quickly. Uh, so I actually wanted to switch gears a little bit and get really into this topic of content strategy. And I love that the, this quote that you mentioned recently from one of your articles from Erica Hall, um, and she says that conversation is not a new interface. It's the oldest interface. And I love that quote because it really gets to the heart of this is that voice is the, perhaps maybe the only technology that doesn't significantly augment how we use the devices. Uh, it's so natural. It's the, the correspondence with the programs that run it becoming so fluid. And I think that's just absolutely incredible. But, you know, I think connecting people to services and products, conversations actually do a lot of that work. So I think one example is, you know, a friend may recommend a new product to me. They may recommend to subscribe to a newsletter or to check out a website. And that happens through conversation. And I ask them questions and we have a conversation about it and I go check it out. I recommended a tech product to my friend this week. He had no idea existed. And I explained to him the features in about less than 10 seconds. And he was blown away by those features and those technologies. And so he went and checked it out. And so I think there's this huge opportunity there, but it's a very different experience. So let's talk about what you say in the book is that you, we, brands really need to start with having a clear content strategy and a really good idea of the information hierarchy when it comes to planning for, for users' needs through voice. What do you think is some of those unique opportunities? So let's think about framing out a content strategy or an information hierarchy. Where can brands get some wins early? Or where can brands look at, yeah, really starting to move uh, towards this direction without those huge half a billion euro investments? The very first thing I would say is that, you know, content strategy is, is uh, you know, a very, very vast field with, with a lot of different implications. But I think a lot of organizations have finally begun to understand, as you said, you know, the value of information architecture, the value of structured content, the value of semantic content, of, of semantic data, and really honing and actually harnessing a lot of that power within the context of a web content strategy for the website and for all the brands that they have on the website. But I think there's a really crucial missing step. And I talk about this at length in chapter two of my book, Voice Content Usability, which is available right now at abookapart.com. And that's really the notion of an omni-channel content strategy for single-sourced content or single-sourced information. I think one of the biggest challenges that has 
buffeted these voice implementations over the past five to 10 years has been this lack of cohesion between how we think about the content that we produce, the brand voice that we foster and cultivate on the web in relation to these other experiences that are coming over the horizon, like virtual reality, like digital signage, uh, like conversational interfaces mm -hmm. and voice interfaces. So, um, you know, the very first thing I talk about in chapter two is, well, you need to really think about the future of your content and the future of your information delivery in a very purposeful and intentional way, because a lot of the things that people have today are very much biased towards the web. And by doing this, you get a really interesting perspective over the ways in which you might want to deploy your content into a voice interface or the ways in which you want to deliver information through a voice interface. And to do that, though, you have to really look at, okay, well, here's how our content or here's how our brand marketing, here's how a lot of our work has been focused around the web, and here's how we can steer it in a different direction. For the state of Georgia, for example, what we did is we put together a content audit. And a lot of people are very used to when accustomed to the notion of a content audit when it comes to things like GDPR compliance or peer content audits that really focus on uh, a, a sort of holistic editorial perspective. But there's not a whole lot of work, apart from the things that I've published, of course, around omni-channel content audits that really inspect the content from an impartial perspective that really emphasize, okay, how do we look at the notion of how this content looks and reads on the web versus how does this content sound on a voice interface versus how does this content display in you know 120 point font on a digital sign in the Melbourne tram system for example mm -hmm. so so these are all very important considerations that are really not yet very big fixture of a lot of these different organizations that are looking to improve their content and improve their brand voice in ways that are really oriented towards this new digital age. I think just as now a lot of organizations are waking up to the power of YouTube and Twitter, in some ways they're, all, they're already a little bit behind the curve in many regards because you know, I think a lot of the ways in which digital experiences are evolving are even beyond where organizations are today in that regard. So looking at the content strategy from the perspective of how you can deliver this information or deliver these transactions in ways that make sense to a voice setting, but also to all the other settings that you might experience. And also, of course, those cross-channel interactions that um, I mentioned earlier, where, you know, does your brand perform well when it comes to being under that stress and strain of somebody who's looking at your phone application at the same time that they're looking up at your digital sign at the same time that they might be talking with a voice interface? How does your information, how does your brand perform in that sort of a, let's say, customer experience sent to the extremes. So, um, you know, chapter two of my book covers this at great length. I've got many different examples in there of how we did this for Georgia, how I would potentially recommend a lot of organizations pursue this sort of omnichannel content strategy. But as we learned the hard way, it is very, very, it is very, very much the only way to foster a single sourced content strategy that allows for you to keep all of your content maintainable, allows you to keep all of your content manageable, and ultimately is going to help you in the long run. Yeah, there's there's just so much to unpack there. It's an entire galaxy when it comes to that omni-channel content strategy and and even just that topic of congruency. So you used an example before, Preston, about you know, someone may be browsing on their their phone or device or they're typing on their keyboard and they're also talking to a voice assistant as well. And so it's being able to orchestrate those different experiences in a way that makes sense and is congruent and it really delivers such a rich experience for the customer um, and creates all kinds of great opportunities for brands. You know, even um, the topic, I'm interested to get your view on this, is that on the topic of having branding a sound or, you know, a chime or a jingle, you know, back when, you know, they still have TV ads, I guess, you know, jingling is a, jingles are a big part of branding as well. But I find that the, there's this incredible world of opportunity when it comes to content strategy. And I definitely recommend reading chapter two of, of your book because there needs to be a place to start because there's so many opportunities, so many directions you can go in. But let's touch a little bit on accessibility, inclusion, and equity. I mean, what I mean by those things is really looking at how voice and immersive experiences really solve a lot of problems for people who 
perhaps have impairments for how we do the web most of the time today, which is through visual and touch. Um, I think there's a, an interesting one here is that, and you asked a question about voice interfa interfaces sounding as human as we do, but then what is the cost of that? And so I wanted to ask you, what do you think the cost of that is? Um, what are the implications for people that may have impairments or a lack of access uh, by having these very human-like voice <laughs> experiences? What's the cost of those things? What do you think? Yeah, and I think this is a very relevant topic, especially right now, given um, a lot of the struggles that uh, marginalized communities face around the world, especially disabled communities who oftentimes have a very, very tough time accessing medicine or accessing some of the things that we take for granted on the visual web. And I want to be very clear, you know, when I when I mentioned earlier, of course, that there is a lot of assistive potential that is inherent to voice interfaces, there is still exclusion that happens. For example, even though voice interfaces might provide that really stellar experience for those um, who are members of blind communities, you, you don't really have that when it comes to deaf customers or deaf blind customers with a voice interface you really can't necessarily say that that's solving accessibility for your organization, given that you know it doesn't still provide a lot of access to uh, certain folks. So, so accessibility is obviously becoming a very, very important concern. I think it's it's one of those things that has really kind of revealed a lot of the biases that technologists have today. But there's other biases, of course, that technologists have that need to be uh, really pondered and that we need to really confront as people who operate in this space. And chief among those, I think, is is really the notion of the voice assistant itself. And if you think about, you know, Alexa or Cortana or Siri, mm -hmm. and you interact with these devices, well, who is the person you're picturing in your mind? Mm -hmm. Because when when Erica Hall writes, you know, conversation is not a new interface, it's the oldest interface, she, she's not just talking about the ways in which we interact with each other. She's also talking about the inherent and intrinsic humanity that we attach to these devices much more than we would to a website. Right. I mean, I mean, when was the last time we personified or anthropomorphized a website? I mean, ask Jeeves, maybe, or a tool <laughs> like Clippy, right, on Microsoft Word. But yep. there's there's not a whole lot of that sort of deep personification that happens on the visual web. And with Microsoft Cortana, with Siri, with Alexa, well, first of all, why is it that all of these assistants sound like straight cisgender white women? who speak with a middle American dialect or a general American <laughs> dialect. And, and why is it that they are portrayed and, and we picture them in our heads as secretarial women, as executive mm -hmm. assistants, and, and literally yeah. call them that, right? Or we, we treat them as as glorified concierges. So, so I think a lot of the implications that are interesting, and I talk about this at length in chapter six of my book, Voice Content Usability, is this notion that, well, you know, if you look at the ways in which technology has developed over the past few decades, right, the web, in terms of the browsers that we use, in terms of the sort of core aspects of our technology, they don't really show these intrinsic biases that we have as humans. But, you know, this is one of those things that I always have to say is that, well, you know, Alexa, Cortana, Siri, they're robots, right? They don't care how they're personified. They don't they don't care about mm. any of the issues of racism and misogyny and misogynoir and anti-blackness that we have in society or anti-indigeneity. Uh, anti but we have to consider those things because for all intents and purposes, we do treat these interfaces as human. So mm. I think there's a very interesting kind of uh, polarization that's happening right now between a certain segment of the technology world that is very much wanting to go back to basics. And I'm very much in this camp of saying, well, you know, we need to really think about the implications long term of some of these issues where, you know, people of color who are darker skinned, indigenous people who are darker skinned, they're being treated in racist ways with the Twitter with the Twitter crop algorithm or with uh, these soap dispensers that can't detect somebody who's a person of color because they were only tested on a certain subset of the demographic milieu that we live in. So that's chief among the concerns that I have. But also, of course, the fact that there's this notion that voice interfaces solve this kind of problem of humanity that exists, which is, of course, what uh, you know, futurist Mark Curtis calls the conversational singularity, which I think is a very, very compelling idea. It's this notion that at some point in the near future or far future, there'll be a moment at which 
a conversation that we have with Alexa, with Siri, with Cortana will be indistinguishable from the kind of conversation you and I are having right now on. But that's the big question, right? Is okay, well, that's a conversational singularity that's very compelling, just like the AI singularity, but but indistinguishable to whom, right? Because a lot of the conversations that we have on a day-to-day -day basis really are very different from and contrastive to the kinds of conversations that we have with Alexa or Siri. For example, you know, there's this notion of code switching that happens in bilingual communities. If you go to, for example, South Texas, or if you go to the Preston suburb of Melbourne, for example, you'll find a lot of people who speak in Chinese, speak in Spanish, and they might actually switch between those dialects and languages in mid-sentence. Well, are those sorts of interesting linguistic phenomena and really human aspects and organic aspects of our lived experience is something that we hear in Cortana, Alexa, and Siri. No, they're really not. Mm. And I think there's this really big challenge that we face as well. We mentioned big tech earlier and some of these issues around uh, the concentration of, of, of the reins of power over technology. Um, I think one of the things that really worries me is we see a lot of organizations that have adopted IVR systems back in the day, airlines and hotels, but also now adopting voice interfaces like Alexa and Cortana and Siri that are doing this out of interest of ROI, out of interest of mm. revenue, out of interest of drawing down costs. But when you think about the call center staffers, when you think about the frontline customer service workers who we interact with on a daily basis to solve a problem or help us out with some sort of support issue, generally speaking, they're located in the global south. They're located in the Philippines or in Indonesia or Nigeria or in Pakistan. And I think one of the big outstanding questions that we have today is, well, what happens when we get rid of this richness and this amazing diversity of dialectal and vernacular richness that we have in favor of a monoculture of mechanic, you know, mechanical voices that don't actually reflect our society for who they are. Because, for example, I want to be able to hear the same sorts of switches between Hindi and English that I hear in Mumbai, walking around on the street or looking at advertisements on TV or on billboards. I want to see that and hear that not only on my websites, but also in my voice interfaces. So in many ways, we've still got a very long ways to go. And I think that one of the big challenges that we face is as these interfaces become more and more human, as these interfaces purport to really become more of our lived experiences than even our actual, let's say, non-adjusted experiences are when it comes to interacting with others through voice or interacting with false or fictional worlds or superimposed worlds when it comes to immersive experiences. What are some of the biases that we are both intentionally and unintentionally encoding into these mechanisms by which a lot of the world is increasingly being governed. And I think this is a very pressing question, especially for the next generation who is growing up with these biases already very much part of the fixtures of the digital landscape. It's a very important question, one that we can't answer very well, I think, in the near future. But I think it's one that every technologist today, even in MarTech, even in advertising, has a responsibility to begin to unpack. I agree that we do, I think as practitioners, we do have a responsibility to unpack and also explain um, some of these biases, because I agree that the way in which we use a voice assistant, we have a very specific mental image in mind. We have a very specific use case for that particular technology. And it's it's a machine. And so, you know, saying very strange, weird things to a machine, you know, you're not hurting anybody, anybody's feelings there, I guess. But it's not so much what we do to the technology, but what it's doing to us in the sense of how it's actually augmenting our behavior, which I find quite interesting in that you mentioned before, you know, like a cis a white a woman, you know, as a sort of secretary, as a sort of default voice on a Siri or a sort of a voice assistant. And you have this mental image of a, of a particular person. Now I would say things to a voice assistant that I wouldn't say to my wife or to my daughter or to another woman or to another friend. Now, I just request things and I get them. And I have this very human, very naturally feeling voice that responds to my commands. Now, that's not how any productive, healthy human relationship works. And so I do think that there is a really big implementation here around 
what you say around, yeah, it's, it may be changing our psyche and we're not prepared to do that in the same way in which the news feed that Facebook introduced, you know, everybody rioted against that and said it was a bad idea, but now it's become the mainstay of how people spend their time. A lot of their time on the web is scrolling through an endless feed of content. And so there's all these new heuristics and dynamics that technology is introducing and we're not really ready, I don't think, even just to understand and unpack the implications of what it's doing to our psychology and our social norms and behaviors. And I do think a part of this whole category of voice and the mercy of technology is an element of anthropology, understanding how language is transformed through its um, community or society, understanding the norms of those societies, how, how things are caught and learned, you know, what's the rite of passage for people, things like that. I think is really important when we get into this, um, this next phase of diversified, really immersive technologies that are so close to our human experience, where I think it'll almost vanish eventually that you will probably wouldn't even re realize that you're talking to somebody. Now, I do have a bonus question on that topic as well. So keep listening along. But I, I just wanted to touch on a little bit more into that immersive technology space. So we have talked a little bit about VR, virtual reality and augmented reality um, earlier in the conversation. But there really seems to be that there needs to be a restructure in a lot of tech company, a lot of companies, tech stacks. So, you know, like a lot of tech apps are actually built off the web. So, you know, you have a CMS and you have databases that are attached to that. And you have an email system uh, that all of these things are based on the browser and on the device. And I would be interesting to hear from you and what you think is some of those things and ways we can potentially augment a MarTech stack to introduce these new technologies. Is it, completely new or are we looking at upgrading a CMS or how does that work? Because I think that's one of the biggest sticking points here in terms of implementing some of these technologies and really experimenting with them. Certainly for uh, the MarTech audience, it's very exciting to hear about all these lofty missions and, and, and these ideas. But of course, you know, how do you actually begin to set um, forth on this journey and actually begin to kind of implement this for yourself? The you know, I have good news and I have bad news, right? <laughs> the good news is that the voice interface space in particular has really grown in ways and matured in ways that I think are really unprecedented in a lot of the ways in which we interact with voice interfaces in general. Back in the late 90s, even early 90s in particular, you really needed to have a PhD in computational linguistics or in computer science to be able to even begin thinking about a voice interface and how to uh, build one for yourself. Today, however, and I think this is very much a part of the trend that we're seeing increasingly in MarTech, and I've written about this quite a bit as well in my column at CMS Wire, mm -hmm. is this proliferation of, of low-code or no-code uh, MarTech uh, tools and design tools and uh, content tools that are now emerging, allowing for those who don't have a background in computer science or don't have a background in computational linguistics to be able to build a voice interface for themselves. One of the really nice things I've been seeing recently is uh, not only this uh, really interesting approach to agnostically architecting voice interfaces that allows for people to create one voice interface in a design tool and then actually see that manifest as an Alexa skill, a Google Home Assistant, a, a Siri uh, application as well. And, and these are very important steps, I think, for the industry and, and mm -hmm. as it becomes uh, more mature. And at, by the same token, of course, you also have now these WYSIWYG or what you see is what you can get tools that allow you to build voice interfaces through these flow diagrams, which I talk about at length in chapter four of my book, Voice Content and Usability, um, as well as so many of these uh, new startups that are working in this space. You know, some of them include Bot Society, VoiceBot.ai. There are a lot of these new ventures that are emerging. However, I think one of the bad uh, things that I see right now in the industry is that there hasn't been a concomitant sense of innovation and growth and evolution when it comes to the MarTech stack itself and incrementally adding on to the MarTech stack. What I mean by that is 
even to this day, right, if you're using a content management system, there's not really this kind of easy peasy way to take a voice interface tool and layer it on top of an existing CMS or an existing tool that you might have in your MarTech stack and instantly be able to deploy a voice application or a voice interface. There are some fits and starts that are happening in the right direction. I mean, mm -hmm. for the state of Georgia, ask Georgia Gov that was leveraging the Drupal content management system, there is an integration available that we actually built out um, at our uh, lab to facilitate this very deep and graceful integration between Amazon Alexa and the Drupal CMS. But of course, the challenge with all of these things is that, you know, you know, you really want to be able to kind of plug and play, you know, you want to be able yeah. to take your WordPress CMS or your Oracle CMS. Um, I work for Oracle content management. We obviously have very rich integrations with Oracle digital assistant, but they could be better. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these challenges now will come about and surface in very meaningful ways in the near future. But time will tell how we actually uh, solve for those issues. Hmm. I, I definitely agree that it seems like the integration aspect here is a missing piece that's getting very quickly worked on. Um, and I think that's actually a big piece in here because MarTech stack, if you haven't got a piece, if you've got a uh, isolated piece of software that's potentially running voice, and it's not integrating on the systems, even from analytics perspective, I think that is maybe a sticking point. And because it is such a different type of framework you need to use compared to the web, I would probably suggest that there is a lot of IT managers and a lot of people managing MarTech throwing their hands up in the air and going, what do we do with this? <laughs> it's very unique. It's very different. And how do we actually manage to in integrate it, not just into the technologies you use, but also into the processes in which the people are actually using the tools day to day as well. Um, and so we have time for one bonus question. And this really just touches on what we were talking before about this, um, the human experience of uh, these new technologies is really immersive um, uh, technologies that are, are sort of giving us these experiences of like real life. There's this been this huge rise of deep fakes. If you're familiar with that topic, you know, I saw a fantastic one the other day of Morgan Freeman. It was completely processed using AI and using uh, GAN, which is a type of adversarial network with AI, really like giving you that experience of this is Morgan Freeman talking, but it's not him. Uh, even though it sounds like him, it looks like him, that's completely fake. Um, you know, we now have totally artificial Instagram influence. So, so Ikea has been doing that recently. They've got an Instagram influencer that is promoting products and software and uh, products and services and whatnot. But that person is completely fake. Tesla in the past two weeks has also announced a robot. And so there's all of these new, really interesting technologies that are really bleeding that edge between how do we actually treat these things? They seem human. They, it feels like they're human and they're real, but they're really not. But I, what it does cannot escape me is this, all this innovation still doesn't really address the inherent need to talk with real people. Chatbots are great, but sometimes talking with another flesh and blood person, another human to address a customer service problem I have is just far more preferable because I want to talk to somebody who's like me, not a machine. But I actually think there's a tipping point. And, you know, you do talk about in the book and uh, through your writing, this idea of a conversational singularity or a technological uh, singularity. And so what do you think that tipping point is? Could you uh, give us a bit of a forecast where this integration between human and machine language and communication becomes so seamless that we wouldn't even know that we're talking to a machine? I think it's a it's a really challenging question to answer, and obviously I I I, I sort of you know juggle and um, I, I grapple with this question in uh, chapter six of my book, Voice Content and Usability. Um, as far as a tipping point goes, I mean, you know, there there are certain interesting pieces of evidence, right? The first is, of course, that well. One of the things that is proven and it has been shown through research is that especially those who are suffering from loneliness or depression or who have empty nest syndrome, for example, they do get a benefit from conversing with these voice assistants. At the same time, however, you know, what you just mentioned, Juan, is actually proven through usability studies where a lot of people who have a lot of issues 
with these mechanical voices, this uncanny valley effect, really do prefer to kind of have this very clean and neat separation. For example, Susan Hura, who's who's one of the seminal figures in voice usability, she did research that proved that actually a lot of people prefer to have more artificial conversations with voice interfaces that are obviously artificial because it helps them to kind of kind of really easily distinguish between the kind of conversation they would have with a human being, like a friend, and of course, the kind of conversation that's meant to actually complete some sort of a task. So for me personally, however, I think that this is a very challenging question to answer because once again, the, the question is, well, tipping point for whom? Because when it comes to the you know, run-of-the-mill uh, customer that many organizations are thinking of because of their biases, right? Where they think of the straight cis white man who is generally middle-income and you know has a certain you know amount. I think that's going to come very soon, right? I think that's going to come within the next you know decade or two, where somebody who shares that demographic will have exactly the same kind of conversation that they would expect to have with someone from that community. But I think when it comes to, for example, uh, those who engage in bilingual code switching, those who engage in code switching between queer and straight passing modes of speech, those who engage in dialectal code switching, um, those who speak, for example, African-American vernacular English, AAVE, it's going to be a long time because what needs to happen is the same amount of emphasis that we're placing right now on a lot of the ways in which these voice assistants speak also needs to be afforded all of the different mechanisms and axes and dimensions along which we have diversity in how we speak. Because that's the very definition of what it means to build technology for humans. That's the very mm. core of what makes human-computer interaction, human-computer interaction, is actually becoming one with the ways in which we interact with each other as humans and the ways in which we would prefer to interact as humans. And from my perspective, until these devices and until these voice interfaces and until these artificial intelligence devices can speak with the same amount of richness and the same mm -hmm. amount of organic diversity that we have as a human species, we haven't done exactly what it means to reach that tipping point. So, so once again, you know, I think for 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 voice, it becomes a matter of, yes, it is constantly this tug of war between humanity and artificiality. But at some point, this is fundamentally technology playing on the human playing field. How do we actually enable this technology to sound and speak in ways that are as human as we are ourselves? And that's, of course, the big goal and the big overarching problem of technology that we face as a species. Mm. And I think it's a great uh, place to to wind the podcast down, Preston. And, and I think that's a really good sentiment that, you know, at the end of the day, all these technologies really come down to solving on human experiences and really meeting human needs at the end of the day. Um, and it's a fantastic reminder. So thank you for sharing that. But I would love to throw to you, where are you most active on the web? Where, where can we find your book? Where can we find you online and interact with your content? My latest book, Voice Content and Usability, was just released on June 22nd. You can find it at abookapart.com. It's my publisher. You can also find out more information about me and a lot of the writing that I've done on voice at my website, Preston.so. Mm. But you can also look at a lot of my social media for all of those things as well. I am Preston So on Twitter, on LinkedIn as well. And of course, you can find me at all of the places that I write, which is uh, namely CMS Wire, a list of parts, Smashing Magazine. And you can also find a lot of the speaking that I do over at uh, an event apart, South by Southwest. And to end things on a uh, final promotional note here, obviously, I've uh, just been on this tour for my latest book, Voice Content and Usability, which is the first ever book on voice content and voice content strategy. It's also a list of uh, a book of parts, first ever book on voice as well as, of course, the among the first ever books on how to actually build voices, voice interfaces for designers. Thank you, Preston. Thanks for joining us for Making Sense of MarTech. Thank you so much for having me today. See you next time.